The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar twice, and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne, delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello everyone and welcome to another week of Don't Shoot the Messenger, episode 253. I'm Corrie Perkin with you in our Melbourne studio and Caroline Wilson in our Amsterdam HQ. Hi Caro, how's life in the Northern Hemisphere this week? It's going well, thank you Corrie. Um, I'm talking to you late at night in my little attic and I'm having a wonderful time. The weather has improved and since I spoke to you about 10 days ago. Every day, we've been incredibly lucky. Beautiful sunshine, heaps to do, and having a ball, although the trip's coming in to an end, Corrie. So we'll be back in the studio together early next week. Looking forward Happy to Happy Valentine's that. Day too, doll. Oh, thank you. Love hearts to you. And, Caro, uh, we have to apologise to potties who were waiting with great expectation for our episode last week. You were travelling uh, around Spain and Portugal or just Spain? Can't remember. Spain. Spain. And uh, I, my dreaded lurgy uh, reinvented itself as a lost voice, so I couldn't really talk. So we just decided probably best to not inflict my, um, my voice that made me sound like witchy poo out of HR Puff and stuff, especially when I laughed. But, Carol, we've had some lovely correspondence again this week from Marianne Burke, and this one came to us via email. Hello, Corrie, Caroline and Miss Jane. I listened to episode 251 this morning and love the memories of Rob's Carousel. I went there for my 14th birthday with some friends from school, Star of the Sea, Garden Vale. Aside, Caro, what other famous um, member of the alumni of Star of the Sea do we know? Jermaine Greer? Yes, tick the box, well done. Um, and, uh, And Marianne continues, one of my presents was Carly Simon's LP, You're So Vain, which was so big that year. Great photo of her on the cover wearing the slouchy felt hat, never went out of style. Thanks, Anna, from the op shop for things to do over summer. I ventured to Heidi last week. Yes, Cara, my first time there too. For the Barbara Hepworth exhibition, fantastic. Have the McQueen Expo at the Art Gallery to tick off Anna's list. Now, I have heard, Caro, that Barbara Hepworth at Heidi is brilliant. So when you return to Melbourne, you and I might make a little sojourn out to, to Heidi to see it. I'm really keen. Well, given the places I've visited in the last couple of weeks, Corrie, and I've seen some wonderful, wonderful exhibitions, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been to one of the most famous galleries in my own hometown. So, yes, that is definitely on our list for this year. Well, let's cut to the chase on that. Have you seen the new Vermeer exhibition? It was described by one art newspaper I subscribe to um, as the largest ever Vermeer exhibition, including the girl with the pearl earring. Well, no, I haven't been yet. That is part of my, Vermeer is um, part of my amazing fact for this week. Uh, 250,000 tickets have been sold. It closes on June 4. It's currently sold out, Corrie. Wow. Um, When I arrived in Amsterdam, there were no days available for while I was here. But 
I'm I'm coming back to see it in early June. It is uh, I managed to get um, a, a ticket in early June. It, 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 I think there'll never be an exhibition um, by Vermeer this big, and um, but what we have done, Brendan and I, we were given as a, a Christmas present by the kids, is we've embarked on a a little touristy thing called the Milkmaid Project. It's a new little thing you can do in Amsterdam. It's um, an amazing old place, a studio, an artist studio that um, a, quite a well-known photographer here has set up as Vermeer's, he's basically set up stage, the milkmaid. He's also got um, costumes from old plays that he picked up during COVID, old theatre companies, including The Girl with the Pearl Earring, which is actually only on at the exhibition till the end of March. It then goes back to uh, Den Haag, where it hangs at the uh, Moritz House, and I have seen it there, so I'm not too concerned about that. But he actually photographs you as, as an historic piece of art. <laughs> and... Um, Oh, so you I, could be you could be the two old men in Rembrandt talking or something like that. Well, Brendan actually did um, another artist, um, but he he was William of Orange. But I am the girl with the pearl earring, and um, I might just put it. We might just put it on our socials later today. It's oh, very funny. Do. Rose and Oscar did it. Rose was the milkmaid. It is fascinating what this guy has done. He has set up it up exactly, and you know at the. Um, at the Rights Museum, they've actually found in the original painting of the milkmaid um, another jug and other little bits of detail that were not previously known. Anyway, more of that later. But um, no, I haven't actually been, exciting. but I will be going. So tell us, it's um, the talk of Amsterdam. Well, look, uh, you know, it. it um... It would be a really wonderful uh, exhibition to see too, I think, that Vermeer exhibition. I'm glad you got tickets for later in the year. Now, out and about in Amsterdam, but let's start first with the Spanish Inquisition. Your top Spain travel trips, where did you go and what did you do? Well, I only went to one place and that was Madrid. It was um, a real bucket list for me. And we went, we took um, two of our three children and Ned's um, partner, beautiful Zoe, came as well. We stayed in the shadow of the Royal Palace, which is definitely, I mean, it, it, it is honestly rivals Versailles, Versailles for, um, it, it is so, so ornate and so beautiful. And we did the old um, end of the day, the weather there was spectacular, sort of 16, 17 every day, beautiful sunshine, freezing mornings and nights. And, you know, you queue up after 4pm and you get in for free. The Royal Palace where the current royal family don't live anymore. It's just so worth a visit. I finally got to see Guernica at um, the, you know, the modern art gallery, La Reina Sofia, and a lot of wonderful Picassos and Miros besides. Um, a wonderful um, artist called Ortiz, like the beautiful anchovies and <laughs> tuna and sardines you can buy, you know, that brand. Yes. Actually, I think it's named after this artist. Um, so that was brilliant. Went to what, the what, Prado. What are they, sorry I, to interrupt, but what are the queues like going into Guernica and and that sort of thing? Um, oh, look, you know it's February, so it's actually a really great time to travel. I mean, the weather's lovely and not too hot if you luck if you luck on decent winter weather. Um, we booked everything online and we booked everything for the first opening time. So there were queues, but the queues were probably no more than about thirty meters, and obviously they get a lot worse as the day goes on. Um, some absolutely wonderful tapas bars and beautiful old bars. Um, San Miguel, the market, which was very nearby where we were staying, where we spent far too much time eating far too much food. 
and some lots of lovely little bars around there too. A couple of really funny and extraordinary big big ticket item restaurants and um one of um spain's biggest flea markets it's on every sunday morning so oh it was just it's a great city it's some some a friend of mine said it makes paris looks like a dump i wouldn't go that far but there is something very there is a lot of parisian about madrid but it's also um has a touch of barcelona as well it's a and the 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 little side streets no it's just fabulous cory you would love it love it wow and and so what else have you been doing in amsterdam you sent some photos to the Cornish Walkers WhatsApp on the weekend of some great market activity I saw. A bit of shopping going on, Caro. Yeah. That's unusual for Lord you. March, one of my favourite markets where they sell oysters from the Irish Sea and the North Sea and you just you pay probably a fairly ridiculous amount of money, probably about the same amount of money you pay in Melbourne for oysters and try oysters, Corrie, like you have never tasted as they open them in front of you. Some absolutely beautiful delicatessen type places at Nordermarkt, which is open every Saturday morning. And they have an antique version on the Monday, which is sort of in the Jordan area. We went to something I've never done before, and it's not well advertised, called the Six Collection, which is a famous aristocratic family. Uh, They moved to Amsterdam in the 1600s. They moved into this wonderful, wonderful house on the Amstel River in the the 1800s. And um, Jan VI I was a friend of Rembrandt, so there are Rembrandts here. It's basically like going to the Wallace Collection in London, only a Dutch version, a beautiful old house, beautiful garden and incredible treasures, which the family couldn't afford to sort of continue to fund and pay the tax on, so they opened it up to the public. And you go for free. You've got a book way ahead, but you can usually get in at some point and you, they tour it every morning, five or six people, and you get to walk through this beautiful old house. So six as in S-I-X collection is something I would really recommend. We went to a beautiful little town called Lorraine that a friend of mine recommended about an hour out of, well, half an hour out of town, where we went to the Singer Museum, which um, had another wonderful exhibition, Van Dongen exhibition. And we've done a canal trip. Oh, you know, we've ridden, we rode along the Amstel for a couple of hours the other day in the sunshine out of town. We've had a ball. That's Been, great. And, of course, caught up with, spent a lot of time with family. And Brendan and Ned did a pilgrimage to Ireland on the weekend. They went to Dublin and Brendan went to his father's hometown, Mullingar. Uh, so and I so, was really, I, I, I saw, like um, made every post a winner. Uh, did I see on Instagram Brendan singing Irish ditties in a pub? Uh, you might have. <laughs> and who was, the, who was the happy chappy he was singing with? That's Brendan's cousin, Gerard, who plays the, plays the whistle. And it was a big weekend in Dublin because Ireland played France in the, in the uh, you know, the rugby game. It was a big rugby game, international rugby game. And Ireland won, but it was a great game. So you can imagine the atmos in the pubs around town. They swam in the Irish Sea. I think they went around, I don't know if it was where the Bad Sisters swim, but it was that sort of vibe where they went swimming, where a lot of people swim, a bit like um, our local swimming hole, a lot of people in big coats and Ugg boots <laughs> well, I was, I, in I, the middle of winter. I saw on Ned, I thought, well, there goes one godson. He's just never going to come out of that water in one piece. It looked so cold on, on his um, Ned's post. I couldn't. I couldn't believe they were swimming in the North Sea. Caro, I just have to say I am looking at you on the screen. Would that be a new piece of knitwear that one has acquired while one is away? 
No, Corrie, this is an old favourite. You've seen it many times. It's just It's got a few layers underneath because you do need a lot of layers at this time of year. I was going to say, no, I, I think you've been shopping and sending things home again. I had a bit of fun at the Spanish sales, um, Court de Inglés. I think it's a famous department store there, but I did buy a lovely coat, Corrie. You'll see that when I get home, Great. but no, no knitwear. Well, good good to have a coat for the footy, Caro. Uh, things have been happening around here um, on, on very, no balloons, thankfully, flying across the stratosphere. But um, one of the most interesting stories on the weekend, Carol, I don't know whether you caught up with it, uh, terrific reporting by Chip Legrand of The Age, who did a little bit of a reconstruction of what I'm calling Ryan v. Rugg, a modern workplace dilemma. And this is the dispute between Monique Ryan, the independent member for Kuyong, and her chief of staff since the election last May, Sally Rugg. Have you been, did you catch up with any of that story at all? I, I have, and it's extraordinary, isn't it? Remember when um, Anthony Albanese announced that he was reducing the staff of all the independents from eight down to five? And um, they were saying at the time that this was going to lead to an impossible workload. And clear, well, I'm not saying that that's the reason, but clearly uh, it was a sort of that the prophecy was sort of correct, wasn't it? Well, I, th- I, th- I think that's right. I think the expectation Monique Ryan has had on Sally Rugg, look, how do we know? How, how do we know when we're not in that, uh, in that office and we're not either of the women involved? But their relationship has deteriora- deteriorated under such intense pressure of the first-term parliamentarian commitments with the reduced staff. I had a little bit of insight into this with our local member, Caro, Zoe McKenzie, who's a newbie in Parliament last year. Um, she came in into our area. She she took over Greg Hunt's seat down in Flinders, where you and I spend our time. And um, I caught up with Zoe uh, over summer, actually, and she was saying how uh, the big shock that she has found is, is the kind of the workload and the expectations, the things you have to do, which you do willingly, of course, but at what point does somebody who's on a staffer of uh, of a member of parliament push back? And it got me thinking. Of course, is this a is this a new lockdown phenomenon where people, you know, during lockdown, perhaps not so much for you and me, but but people who had had jobs um, in in law firms or accountancy practices or everything had to move home from their office. They had to move everything home, and then of course you're juggling children, so you're tending to catch up at night with your workload because you had to homeschool or whatever it is just to get the work of the day done. And then the blurring of, of the eight-hour eight day for many people just suddenly it just disappeared. Your whole day and your whole night was kind of about just getting through the workload. And now that, of course, lockdown's over, people have returned to work. And I wonder whether this was a new phenomenon, newish phenomenon, and the fact that people are now saying, no, enough is enough. Now, Sally Rugg has, an empl- has employed the well-known employment lawyer uh, specialist Josh Bornstein to represent her. They're in mediation, Sally Rugg and Monique Ryan, as we speak. But if that breaks down, it will be off to the Supreme Court. And Mr Bornstein on the weekend believed that this case could be an important test case in Australian law. In other words, the right of employees to refuse to work unreasonable and additional hours. And I guess therein lies the crux of the matter. What is considered unreasonable and what is considered additional hours? It's a, going to be a I really think, interesting case to watch. I think politicians do work and their staff work crazy hours. I mean, I think this is not a new thing at all. I think that 
the hours are probably intolerable and people do it for a certain amount of time till they burn out. They don't do it. They're not willing to do it as much now as maybe they were in the past. As you say, more and more people are saying no, enough's enough. And she's actually taken the Commonwealth to court, hasn't she? It's, yes, it's actually the yes, Commonwealth, even right. though Monique Ryan is is obviously mentioned in the affidavit. It, I agree. I think it's going to be a fascinating test case because I, I know from personal experience how hard that the workload is, both federally and from a state level. And I, I'm not sure that um, they're going to continue to be able to get as many good people who just aren't prepared to work those hours anymore. Yeah, it's um, it it made me reflect upon those times over the years when I've had a team working with me or under me. You know, I've been their boss, and at times, one one example that came to mind when I was reading this story, Cara, was when I worked at the National Gallery of Victoria, and you remember when we were about to embark upon the reopening of the Big St Kilda Road building, and our department were working, we were working really long hours. You know, getting in there at six and seven a.m. and leaving at 9 and 10 at night and you have to as a boss you have to be aware if you are asking your staff to work longer hours the manager has to be acutely aware of the sacrifices that people are making and you've all got the task at hand and most of the time everybody's pretty focused and ready to go but then you've got to discuss with your team okay what are the hours you've been working how are you feeling you know check in with them do you want some time off now do you want to have some time off to extend your next holiday how do you want to manage this and it is also up to the employee to put their hand up and have the courage to say, you know, to kind of push back. Um, I think I'm being overworked here. So there's a responsibility on both sides. But gee, it's interesting, isn't it? I think we're and I'm we're pretty old fashioned, aren't we? I mean, we just would have probably in our twenties and early and thirties, we would have just done the work because that's what we were we were wired to do and people were then. I mean, I worked ridiculous hours when I was a young journalist and I worked on my days off if I thought it was an opportunity to get a good story or an interview. And I remember people pulling me up for it and me being horrified. Why shouldn't I work this hard? I love my job. You know what? It's a, it's a great opportunity. And, and probably me too, rolling my eyes at people who weren't prepared to work those hours. Yeah. And, you know, I look yeah. back now and think it's different now. And you it certainly notice it in Amsterdam where people actually work, you know, nine till five and they just stop work mm. when it's time to stop work. I've actually really noticed that here. And I think there'll be more of that and more people wanting to do shorter working weeks and four days a week going forward. Yes, it's a, it's a watch this space. It is indeed. So, listen, um, we might just uh, settle in now for a bit of a drink with Miles from Prince Wine Store. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store. You're down the line today, not in the studio. You're busy as 10 men over there at Prince Wine Store. I was in there the other week, Cara, last week actually, picking up some grog and inside my box of things that I was purchasing was a bottle called Miles's Pick and this was a suggestion we were, we were throwing around the other week about what would you like to give the love of your life on St Valentine's Day. Now, Miles, knowing that I liked a Pinot, he suggested that somebody might like to give me the Charteris Pinot Noir 2021 from Central Otago in New Zealand. Miles, what a crackerjack drop. Do you like it? Like it. We love it. So I, I cracked it open with my daughter, Coco, as we were watching a movie together the other night. We drank half the bottle. We just had a little tasting. 
um, mm. and drank the rest the following night. But what a beautiful tasting Pinot that is. He's uh, PJ Charteris is a pretty experienced winemaker. He's from New Zealand. Uh, works with, uh, I think, still works with Broken Wood in in the Hunter, but that's kind of his home. And so he he you know created this label you know ten ten fifteen years ago. But it's just this this is one of the best renditions we've seen of this wine in a long time, and it's got everything you love about Central Otago, that fruit, that kind of suave mouthfeel that you get, that lovely silkiness and that lovely core of sweet fruit, but done in a really sort of energetic and vibrant style. It's kind of got it all, and, and I think Pinot, I don't know, I think Central Otago Pinot in particular, everyone sort of loves it. So be hard for anyone, I think, not to like this wine. And what's the price of it? So sixty-one dollars, something special for someone special. So, so we're going to splash out a little bit. But you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, sixty-one dollars for a wine of that sort of ilk is uh, particularly good value. I agree. I agree. And Carol, Lucky Coco, you, 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 you had a sixty-one-dollar bottle of Pinot in front of a movie with your daughter. I know. I mean, it's I pretty extravagant. Coco, but... No, it's pretty extravagant. And then was able to have another glass the next night. So. That was yeah. um, it was the Perfect. gift. It was the gift that kept kept on giving. And isn't it interesting? Uh, you know, like I've I've I'm not doing dry February or whatever you call it, Feb fast, but I have certainly with this virus, I have had um, many days where I haven't had any alcohol. So I'm just really just a glass is fine. But with that beautiful intensity of that fruit, Miles, I actually didn't feel like I needed to have another glass or another glass or another glass. You know, it was just perfect. Yeah, it's it's a really lovely wine. Which it's just, I mean, they're they're always good. But yeah, as I said, I think this this version's p- particularly good. This vintage, so yeah, we love that wine. It's great. And and what was your other pick? Because you had a sparkling, I think. From I did, yeah. Louis Picamello, it's called, and it's Cremont de Bourgogne. So Cremont means that it's made the same way that it's made in Champagne. So the the sparkling, the second fermentation that you get in Champagne is done in the bottle. Um, so you get all that lovely creamy, you know, that creamy, um, the creamy bubbles, that lovely creamy mousse that you get from that method. Um, done in a little bit more of a forward, a little bit more fruit, a little bit more crunchy sort of style, um, sparkling wine. And the same grapes as uh, champagne as well, so Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So it's a... Uh, well, I don't want to call it the poor man's champagne, but, you know, it's certainly a great... Uh, it's a great way to sort of get all of those things that you get from champagne in a in a, a you know a less expensive package. I think it's only forty eight dollars on the shelf or something like that. As I say, uh, bubbles without the bust. You don't want to bust your bank yes, account, do you? Perfect. Bubbles uh, without the bust. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I think I purchased a bottle of that as well, but I haven't tried that yet. So I'll wait for a, more of a celebration. Maybe a birthday coming up. Who knows? Carol, have you had any great oh. drinks over there? I've been drinking a lot of orange, Miles. You'll be happy to hear. Well, I have just fallen in love with Spanish wine, particularly white wine. Oh. They, in Madrid, wherever we went to dinner, we would order a bottle of wine because there was five of us. We never, ever had a bad white wine. And I also love the, I can't pronounce it properly, but Jerez, you know, the, the sherry. their beautiful dry sherry that you have a very small glass of before a meal. Absolutely delicious. Yeah, certainly, certainly sort of gaining a little bit more popularity again. And there's a lot of, you know, used, I think it used to be a bit of a sort of, you know, cheap and nasty thing, but that's changed a lot. You know, we're starting to see a lot of really good producers with great sort of sherry 
you know, sherry is one of those great, pretty amazing wines, particularly when you get good ones, but people probably don't try them as much as they should. So I think if you're out at a, a restaurant and they have a, like a nice sherry by the glass or something, it's definitely worth trying. We might uh, we might buy some sherry caro from Prince Wine Store and then in a couple of weeks discuss our sherry observations mm. with you, Miles. Miles, thank you very much for that. And just to remind potties, how do they lock into the Prince Wine Store incredible offer for our listeners? So you can just jump online, so www.princewinestore.com.au uh, and then you just put in the um, S code uh, at checkout and you'll get 10% off the wines in your cart. Fantastic. That was Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store. Miles, thanks again for joining us this week. Thank you. Caro, book screen food for Red Energy and you're going to kick us off with a book by one of our favourite writers, Jonathan Coe. Well, you put me on to Jonathan Coe with Middle England. We continue to fall in love. You gave me another another wonderful book by him a few months ago called The Rain Before It Falls, which is just a fabulous book. And, of course, Mr Wilder and Me, um, the story about um, Billy Wilder's ill-fated film that he made in Greece. But this new one, Bourneville, is, it, it's been seen as his, you know, his great epic. It's a... It's a really wonderful book. There are times where I thought, oh, is it a bit contrived? No, it's not. It, like Middle England, it has a Brexit bent. It, um, it's, it's another, this time it's a story told over four generations. Um, the main character, Mary, we first are introduced to her around VE Day. And the story is told over six major moments in British history in the 1900s and early 21st century. Beginning with VE Day, uh, the Queen's coronation, Prince Charles's investiture as the Prince of Wales. There's the marriage of Prince Charles and Diana. There is um, Brexit itself. It is just an amazing thread, and obviously COVID, ending with COVID. Jonathan Coe, it's, it's autobiographical in that he lived near Bourneville. Bourneville was, of course, a town set up in Birmingham by the Quaker Cadbury family where they built the chocolate family. And their dream was to have this ideal town. Alcohol was banned. There were no pubs. There was going to be a little garden village. It sounds like Um, the town in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Well, it's, but it's real. It's extraordinary. It was it was born in the eighteen hundreds, and they ended, they ended up building a theme park. But I always I always loved um, Bourneville Cocoa. I guess that's where it's from, huh? Completely. Yes. Funny about that. Um, members of the family work at the Bourneville factory in different ways. There's a lot of EU. There's a lot of Boris Johnson. There's a lot of really strong views either way about the royal family. And like many of his books, characters cross-pollinate. So a character, a family from Mr Wilder and me emerge as as a backstory in this book, as does an, the same family from The Rain Before It Falls. It's Look, it's... it, it it actually the story starts in Germany, and um, Mary's granddaughter is touring as a musician, as a classical musician, and COVID has just struck. So concerts are getting cancelled left, right, and centre. But they're playing some, they're not playing some, and then it goes back to VE Day. And Corey, look, I just couldn't put this book down. I could not put it down. And at the end of the book, Jonathan Coe writes about which bits of the story are his own life and which bits aren't. But he makes a 
in you know how at the end of books, you know, there's often a bit of an author's note and they can go overboard and thank too many people. He actually just makes a very short statement about his views about what happened in Britain during COVID. It is just fascinating. The family have a big falling out over Brexit and the EU. Look, there's a lot of it set in Brussels where he's written other novels as well. Um, it's a, it is an epic and you will not put it down. Sounds great. Hopefully. I can't wait. Uh, Caro, we've had a, um, a, a listener, Michelle Davis, via Instagram. Hi, Michelle, uh, has contacted us with a book recommendation. She says, hi, girls, just finished reading Travelling in a Strange Land, a little book, quite a beautiful story. Belfast man road trips through blizzards to Sunderland to collect his stranded sick uni son. Uh, student son, while musing over his life and the tragedy that has befallen his family, noticed this other book of his about a few different people travelling from Belfast to Amsterdam. Thought Caro would be interested in this one while she's in Amsterdam. So the first book, as I said, Travelling in a Strange Land by David Park, and then she sent a little image of the Amsterdam book with this most beautiful cover, I guess, of canal houses. It's called The Light of Amsterdam by David Park. Do you know it? I don't, but it was so funny, Corey. On the plane coming over, I was well, not bailed up. I was um, going to my seat um, after the stopover in Singapore, and this young man said hello, and he said, "Look, you don't know me, but my mother, when you were last in Amsterdam, recommended a book which you talked about on the po- podcast called Why the Dutch Are Different. I'm the one who recommended it, and I'm on my way back to Amsterdam, and I just recognised you." <laughs> Do you remember that book, Why I the Dutch Are Different? Anyway, I do. I do, and I remember the party contacting us saying that. Her, so that is hilarious. Do you know what? We uh, we travel far and wide, this podcast. <laughs> That's so Anyway, funny. I've done lots of reading, and a lot of the books were lent to me by you, so thank you very much. And I'll can I just go on a roll now into movies? Please do. I'm dying to hear about movie, this one. My movie is also, well, far more autobiographical than the book by Jonathan Coe. This is Steven Spielberg's new film, The Fablemans, which Brendan and I went and saw last week over here on a particularly cold night. Corrie, this is, look, I know I rave a lot, but this is a wonderful film. It's been Oscar nominated, Best Director, Best Film, uh, Best Actor, um, Michelle Williams, who is absolutely brilliant. She plays the, um, the Steven Spielberg character's mother. And I think Judd Hirsch, who has a bit part, has also been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. There's a cameo by David Lynch, who plays John Ford, the famous film director. But it is a story of Steven Spielberg. It begins in America in the 50s. The Fablemans are a Jewish family. And young Sammy Fableman is taken to the movies by his parents. And he's taken to see uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, you know, the circus film. And he is smitten. And he basically gets a camera. He makes films with his scout group, with his family. He uses everyone in his life to make films. There's, it's an homage to Spielberg and other famous directors in the little vignettes that happen during the film, um, including E.T. and including Blow Up, you know, not even a Spielberg film, but some of his favourite films. It's about his parents' troubled marriage, which, and, and yet their incredible loyalty to him. Uh, Sammy... Fableman, the Spielberg character, is played by two actors, but Gabrielle LaBelle, who plays him as an older teenager, is 
absolutely brilliant. And Paul Dano, who was in Little Miss Sunshine as a much younger character, and the Batman plays his father. And Michelle Williams, of course, plays the mother, and she is a wonderful character and looks a lot like Spielberg's mother when she was younger. Uh, this, I think this is his absolute, absolute triumph. And he's done it. You know, he's done a lot of different films, Steven Spielberg, from the, you know, Schindler's List, obviously, to the E.T. style, to the... Uh, but Do you remember Jewel, just... Caro? Do you remember Jewel? Oh, yes. That the was the first film. The truck drama. About yeah, the, tru the truck dra driver drama. Wow. Talk about there's, there's climax. There's scenes in this film, as I... As I say, anyway, it, it's a great it, two and a half hours, and I was like, mm, two and a half hours. I always think films should be two hours. You are never bored, and you just fascinate. It's a it's a wonderful story about being a Jewish kid in America in the fifties and sixties and early seventies, and I urge you to go and see it. So it sounds now, um, so it sounds if he receives an Oscar for this, it sounds that it won't be just a, a, a nostalgic. Uh, warm-hearted vote. It actually sounds body like it's a... Body of work sort of type of... <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. one of those. Yeah, body <laughs> of work. Um, it sounds really good. And I love... What I love... I was going to see uh, The Whale. I thought of you last week because I thought, oh, Carol will be laughing because I was all ready to go to The Whale with Coco, my daughter, who was um, staying with me overnight. And she said, oh, I think it sounds really depressing. So we ended up staying home watching She Said, which you recommended on this <laughs> podcast last week, uh, last year, which was brilliant. I, I agree. I think The Whale uh, looks so depressing. I can't... Yeah. Well, look, I'm still very keen to see it, but I wanted to have an Academy Award nomination up my sleeve to show off, but I'm glad you mentioned The Fablemans. And one of the things I love about the, that movie is its title, because I think yes. it is, I think it's just a real nod to the world of movies and, and the men who, mostly men, sadly, thankfully few more women are coming on board, but the, the, the men of the 50s and 60s and 70s who really created that whole telling fables, telling stories, I think it's beautiful. So you've been cooking? Well, I actually haven't been cooking. Um, I, it's funny, with this virus, it's been a month now and I haven't felt much like food at all. But I tell you what, on the weekend we went to um, my friend Linda and Paul's house for dinner and um, Linda just whipped something up. I don't think she did whip. I think um, she's a fantastic cook. But it did seem such an easy recipe and she said you have to, like I said, this has to go on the podcast and she agreed because it's so easy. So this is a wonderful tip and it was cooked beautifully and I ate uh, pretty much every little bit on my plate. You get a chicken fillet, Caro, a, a chicken breast, and you open it out, you sort of cut it a bit, and you put inside slices of bocconcini and fresh basil salt and pepper, fold it over and then wrap it in each each chicken fillet in three or four slices of prosciutto, rub a little olive oil around that and bake it for 30 to 40 minutes on a bed of cherry tomatoes and uh, kalamata olives. Now, um, that's the old kind of Jamie... Oliver recipe, if you recall, that we love with the smoked salmon and you cook it with the beans and, and on top of a bed of olives. And it, it's a really great combo. There's no doubt about that. Um, Linda says cook it to 30, 30 to 40 minutes. I was discussing this with our friend Joe, our um, EA in life, who brought up our children <laughs> last oh, night. Oh, EA now. EA. <laughs> well, I don't, think we should call her, I don't think we should call her our slave. <laughs> I think that's really mean. Um, but... Yeah. Um, 
Uh, she actually still last night said, I love being called the slave. So I just wanted to say that. But um, Joe, Joe said, gosh, that seems like 30 to 40 minutes. That seems like a long time. And I, I said, you know, everybody has a different oven, Joe. I, I do think with cooking these things, you should always check. You don't want your chicken to be too hard and tough, do you? But I think you probably do have to check it from about the 25, 30 minute mark just to check. Everybody's oven is different. But that's the recipe and it will be on the show notes. I don't know what we'll call it, Miss Jane. Linda, I said, Linda said she's done it with a little bit of a twist. So we could quite happily call it Linda's baked chicken or stuffed chicken with prosciutto. How about we do that? Linda with a Y. Prosciutto stuffed chicken. Yeah, Prosciutto something like that. Oh, I'll come up I with an appropriate maybe title. Maybe the cooking time is because you wanted to have that lovely baked, crispy look around the edge and also because you've got stuff inside it, so maybe that slows it down a bit. Is it basil as well? Yeah, basil middle? basil inside. So basil boccancini. Yum. Um, so really, de- really, really delicious. Looks really pretty. With a garden salad, uh, away you go. That's, that's a, a, a weeknight dinner or, in fact, like we did when friends are coming over for a meal. So that well, is... You could also, if you're in Spain, Corrie, you would use jamon. And I thought I was going to turn into a piece of jamon <laughs> after I, the amount of jamon I, in every different way possible. Jamon, Eileen. Yeah, well, you know, look, um, where would you get that in Melbourne? Would you go to the Vic Market, I guess, and find jamon? Yeah, There'd be plenty of places. Anyway, that was BSF for Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar twice. Now, I don't know what CanStar is, but I guess it's like the Academy Awards of the energy industry. So well done, Red Energy. I didn't know that you had achieved that. Carol, I'm going to be on a roll now and I'm going to talk about, I'm going to be grumpy and I'm going to talk about this sort of pylon that has occurred um, post uh, Super Bowl, which was um, earlier this week, which, as you know, having uh, a husband who spent so much time in America, um, we we do end up watching the Super Bowl. But the halftime entertainment by Rhiannon, I thought was Rihanna. Sorry, it was absolutely fantastic. Rihanna, please. Rihanna, <laughs> let, let me get the names right. And I'm thinking of Rihanna and the song. Isn't that ridiculous? From Rihanna. Now I don't know whether you caught this. Um, I did, and, and I the, did. I and watched the, it this morning. Oh, and the finale was she exposed that she had like a pit suit on. It was very kind of 80s, actually. It reminded me of those pit suits and Michelin Man look and, and a fantastic backup dance um, ensemble with her. But she undid her pit suit, her red, bright red, amazing pit suit to her tummy to reveal that she's actually pregnant. And... Um, and that that has been, um, you know, it was. A, I, I thought it was really good. I thought her sound was fantastic. It wasn't as showy and as vigorous as other years. I do remember with J Lo, um, that amazing thing a couple of years ago. And of course, Beyonce, of course, just blew the Super Bowl halftime entertainment into a whole new stratosphere. But I thought, and they we, tried to say Beyonce was lip syncing, and she came in to the press conference and sang the entire national anthem and said, <laughs> "Any questions?" That's right. <laughs> You know, we love her. Don't we just we adore her? But didn't didn't Rihanna say last week that I might be bringing a special guest to the performance and people were going, will it be Jay-Z? Exactly, be? exactly. And it's and the it little baby. baby. I know. But but I don't know whether you've been following the Donald Trump pylon, and this is what is making me grumpy. Rihanna, a couple of years ago, uh, had, an, had an, a bit of an anti-Trump moment and um, sprayed uh, the F word 
F Donald Trump on a car Cadillac. And of course, she's now been uh, a target of his abuse, no longer on Twitter, but everywhere else. And in, you know, last earlier in the week, he lashed out at Rihanna before the, the performance saying she's nothing without her stylist. She'd be nothing. She's bad at everything. No talent. So this is all sort of coming from Miralago, of course, where an increasingly weird former president is um, holed up these days. But it just continued after the extraordinary Super Bowl halftime performance. And he posted on his Truth Social, which is now his only platform, Epic fail. Rihanna gave without question the single worst halftime show in Super Bowl history. This after insulting far more than half of our nation, which is already in serious decline with her foul and insulting language and so much for her stylist. I just go, Donald, really, you know, just stick to your golf game, Dal. Speaking of speaking of stylists, it was a bit cheeky when she um doesn't she have a makeup brand and she put on a bit of blusher yes, during the that's performance, right. which was her Talk about a free ad. I mean, she would have been paid millions. Oh, I don't think she's performed for about five four, years. Four years. Think... No, she hasn't. Four years. And really pitch perfect, I thought. And the ending where she comes down on what looks like a shard of glass. Uh, it was. I, I thought it was really great. I loved it. Laurie, I think it. you've just used your excuse to be grumpy as an excuse to rave about Rihanna's performance <laughs> at the Super I know. Well, I don't want to go on too much about Donald Trump because I know potties out there are just rolling their eyes going, again? But that, yeah. Anyway, Caro, on to six uh, quick questions. Why don't we... Um... Well, I'm going to kick off. And I want to ask what your one takeaway was from the Herald Sun story on Shane Warne's will and his last few weeks of life. Gee, only a year since we heard that terrible news. I know, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Caro, um, look, it was an inter- it was a really interesting story in the Herald Sun on the weekend, and I'm not sure whether you caught it, by Jasmine um, uh, Kozlowskas, I think is how I pronounce it. I did her not. Name. And uh, it's the coroner's finding, uh, death by coronary coronary artery atherosclerosis, which is a build-up of plaque within the heart, resulting in clogged arteries, which resulted, of course, in the fatal heart attack. there was. It's quite interesting to read how much the kids are going to get, and it's a pretty even divide. He's left a bit of money for his brother. However that unfolds, that's all fine. None of my business. I don't care. But I think the take-home for me, because it is a topic close to my heart, is that he had suffered chest pain, which we had heard at the time he'd seen a doctor. But we actually, the reporter actually goes into the weeds a bit with this one. He had had chest pain and... Um, and reportedly had had some of this before he went on the Thailand holiday with friends. The Herald Sun alleges that Warren went to see a cardiologist because of this chest pain. And whether he did see the cardiologist or not, he was certainly, he had the symptoms and he had said that he'd had chest pain. Can I just say to men and women who might be experiencing regular chest pain, please, please see your doctor. Chest pain is not normal. Don't think, oh, did I exercise badly? If you have a pressure or a tightness in your chest or you have a burning feeling or indeed a pain that spreads across your back and your neck and your jaws, sometimes people think, oh, I was swimming yesterday. Maybe my muscles are really overly stiff. If you have shortness of breath, uh, it may or may not be a heart problem. It might be a muscle strain. It might be a lung infection, especially in this post-COVID world. But chest pain is not normal. Please see a doctor. So that 
was my take-home from that article, Caro. Um, what still perplexes you about the Alan Tudge affair? Well, Alan Tudge, of course, has quit federal politics, quit his seat. That was announced, I think, last week. It, it's quite bizarre to me, Corey, that um, Re- Rachel Miller, um, the staffer, of course, who took the um, took the entire situation to court and settled with the Commonwealth, um, she claims she was abused by her former boss. You know, when he was a government minister, they had an affair. Um, she the Complaints she first made, I think, in 2020, she said she was bullied and harassed while working for Alan Tudge and Michaela Cash. Now, the Commonwealth paid her $650,000. There was apparently 300000 she claims, for her distress, humiliation, dislocation of life, loss of professional standing, personal dignity. There was um, 110000 in respect of loss of, um, loss of past and future earnings. There was legal costs. There was a reimbursement for past medical expenses, um, future medical expenses. We have never been told by the Commonwealth why the taxpayers have paid all this money. We've heard Rachel Miller's version, and they have refused to comment on why they settled with Rachel Miller. Now, Is there a confidentiality agreement? There must be. Well, it's just surely the public has a right to know when that sort of money is being paid to a staffer. He's saying, he always, my memory was, he denied a lot of what was alleged. And he's talked about the dreadful pain and hurt to his family as a result of what happened, you know, the publicising and how bad it was for his kids and, you know, all the stuff that when these things happen, men generally say. I just find it astounding that we don't know. We've got her version and the... I would have thought that under FOI, that would be something that we deserve to know. I agree. Let's get Nick anyway, McKenzie Corey, on the case. Valentine's Day, your top five romantic movies. In no particular order, Caro. Sleepless. This is very impressive research by you. Oh, come on. I'm a, you know I'm a movie buff, but I just always let you have your <laughs> I know moment what in one the of sun. Going to be. I don't know whether you do, actually. Sleepless in Seattle, which I loved, When Harry Met Sally... Yep, that was my, I knew, that was it. Great movie. Um, Moonstruck. Do you oh, remember that with film. Cher and, oh. La- and Nicolas Cage and they go to the Absolutely opera? Absolutely brilliant. Isn't that just great a beautiful, be- and, the, and, the moon, and the moon is a character in the film actually. Four Weddings and a Funeral, because I still do, I still do love that movie so much. I don't know how many times I've seen it. And then one that I, I think I've told you before, it's my favourite movie ever, which is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Absolutely. <laughs> and the reason Absolutely. I love it, it might not be uh, at first glance considered a romantic movie, but for me it is because there are two romances going on. In fact, dare I say three, if you consider Spencer Tracy's relationship with his old friend Mike, who's the Catholic priest. But Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy as the husband, older husband and wife, he is a small L liberal San Francisco editor of a newspaper who is supposed to have a very open and broad mind and his wife, Catherine Hepburn plays, who's feisty and fabulous, and their daughter Joey comes home after travelling and says she's met the love of her life and he arrives at the door and it's Sidney Poitier. And this is 1960s America and the Spencer Tracy editor has to get his head around the fact that he's he now has an African-American in his home. 
and he has Spencer a bit of tra- Tracy speak at the end uh, of the beautiful, film. Beautiful, absolutely. Beautiful. And he died, died just not long after. after. Didn't he? So I love the relationship between Catherine and Spencer, the husband and wife, and she she telling him that he's um, you know an old curmudgeon. And I love the relationship between Joey and the Sydney Portier character. I can't remember the name of the actress who played Joey. That's why I'm calling her Joey. But her absolute innocence about seeing no racial problem whatsoever. She just wants to marry this wonderful man. I think it's a fantastic movie. Guess who's coming to dinner? If you haven't seen it, Podsters, dial it up somewhere on I don't know what platform. I went platform. to a wedding in um, December, Corrie, where the minister at the um, Sorrento Church, actually, a church well-known to you, where the minister invoked Guess Who's Coming to Dinner as basically his theme around the wedding. Fantastic. And I thought of you. I thought of you. Now, it's a wonderful film. I I am a bit disappointed Casablanca didn't get a mention because I just... Yeah, well, Carol, I did, you know, as you know, I researched this to the nth degree. Wikipedia, my great source, said that Casablanca has been considered the best, uh, the most important and best romantic uh, movie ever made, 1942, with, of course, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Um, while we're on the topic of love and all things schmoozy, your, what's your favourite Bert Bacharach song? Because, of course, Bert, the wonderful Bert, died this week in California. You, you could name 20 songs, couldn't you? And any of them could be I'll Never Fall in Love Again is one of, in my top five, as is Arthur's theme, which I know he wrote with Christopher Cross and I think Dudley Moore and Carol Bayer-Sager. Close to You. Did you know that um, the first person who had a hit or sang Close to You was Richard Chamberlain, the actor, in about 1962? Good trivia. I know. But anyway, The Carpenters made it, and it's very similar to that other wonderful raindrops keep falling on my head. But in in keeping with Valentine's Day, Corey, I'm going to pick This Guy's in Love. I just think that is the most wonderful this song. This Guy's in Love with that You. That is just a Miss song. Jane is just moving to the music now. Oh, good on you, Janie. You discovered it. I agree, Caro. I think that is a wonderful song. So many highlights and so many memories from parents of the seventies. Um, do yourself a favour and get the um, Elvis Costello um, album that he made as a tri- his Bert Bacharach tribute. And in fact, he and Bert wrote some songs together in later in Bert's life. And early on, he toured with Marlena Dietrich, didn't he? He was a pianist when she he toured. Did. So and he's a. Did you know I met him? No, have I ever told I you that? Did not. Yeah, when I was working for the Australian, he was. Uh, it must have been about two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine, and he came to Melbourne to do a, a concert, and uh, they were expecting a big, big press conference. I think there were three of us rocked up, so we just ended up chat. It was just super yeah. duper, and very good looking still at that age, and he would have been in his mid eighties then. Um, yes, yeah, so on to oh, you now. You've got a question. Fascinating piece of hairdresser information. Did you learn this week? This story came from Mamma Mia, Caro, and it was titled The Ten Things Hairdressers Wish You'd Stop Doing When You Come Into Their Salon. I'm not going to go through oh, all ten. It's what terrific. about the things we wish they'd stop doing when we go into their How's your day? How's your day going? What are you doing you going tonight? tonight? <laughs> what are you doing tonight? Um, <laughs> yeah, 
No, look, we love hairdressers. Come on. But this was really no, interesting because do. because we think, of course, we walk in and hairdressers go, oh, hooray, my favourite clients come in. They're not thinking that at all. So what they a f- couple of the things that they do not like you doing, bringing in an unrealistic photograph and saying, oh, I'd like my hair done like that. <laughs> bringing in a photo of, you know, J-Lo. And- <laughs> Guilty. Jennifer um- Aniston. I'd like a haircut like this. Um, making an appointment, making an appointment for something completely different. So when you say, "Oh, I just want to blow away," I got caught up with this not long ago because I booked online somewhere in in the city, and it said, "Oh, what's your length of your hair?" And I said, "Oh, shoulder length." And of course, the the when I went to pay, she said, "Oh, look, we've charged. We have to charge you a bit more than online because your hair's longer." And I thought I've been caught out fibbing about the length <laughs> of my hair. Um, another one: showing up late to an appointment with a coffee. <laughs> That's bad. That's bad. Guilty. 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 <laughs> and um, yeah, and so, and other th- and the other thing they said too was asking for a fringe when you clearly have reservations. Now going through this at the moment with daughter Coco, who is umming and ahhing about will I get a fringe? And I just think if you're not a hundred percent committed, don't do it. <laughs> Caro, what's Both your my amazing? Girls have done it and regretted it. And I know. Off shot, well, she liked it for a while now. She's been growing it out for about two years, as it took me that long too. Once it's gone, Tell it's a Coco long. It's a big commitment. It's a long road back from the fringe. Caro, what is your amazing fact? Well, I'm going to go back to where we started, Corrie, with Johannes Vermeer, who was born in 1632. Obviously, his most famous painting is a girl with a pearl earring and probably the milkmaid. Um, there's the Lady of the Virginals that hangs in the Royal Palace. Uh, hangs in Buckingham Palace at times, and also the Royal, the, the National Gallery in London. Um, there's girl reading a letter at an open window, where um, which hangs in Dresden, where they restored, which they restored recently, and they found a cupid beneath a blank wall. Isn't that extraordinary? It's amazing. There's another one involving a, a flute that they now say he didn't paint, but who cares? But he was born, as I said, in 1632. Born in Delft, has done some beautiful beautiful um, scenes across the water of Delft, um, which I've seen at the uh, Maritz House in Den Haag. He died at the age of 43. Nothing, Corrie, is known about him, except that he got married when he was 21. He died um, penniless. And we know he was very upset when the French invaded Holland, I think in about, about three years before he died, because it, it absolutely broke him and had a huge toll on the ec- economic life in the Netherlands. But given that he has now inspired so many mems, Girl with the Pearl, I mean, National Tulip Day in January here, the girl with the pearl earring, they all dress up as a girl with the pearl earring holding bunches of tulips. In America, in various hotels, they come in wearing that costume. This studio I told you about near um, Anne Frank's house where we were all photographed. It was just extraordinary, the recreation and the detail and the almost art that he creates. He painted so many women, usually um, work, well, often work, women work Worker women, yes, he, they work women in, in the tasks of the, the home. Uh, but that, yes, the but movie with uh, the Girl with the Pearl Earring movie with Colin Firth, uh, there, was a, there was something sinister about his Vermeer. 
Yeah, nothing is really that. The girl with the pearl earring is rumoured to be his daughter, but nobody knows. This artist, he only painted 37 paintings, and I think 28 of them they've managed to get for this exhibition, which is just extraordinary. And they've gone to New York and Dresden, as I said, and London and Berlin and Washington, all around the and Paris from at Le Louvre, but it's um, just fascinating that we know so little about him. Rembrandt, of course, was borrowing money left, right, and centre, getting married, remarried, falling out with friends, making his fortune, losing it again. And this man, who has inspired 250,000 ticket sales already, the whole thing is sold out. They're, they're trying to find new ways to open the gallery to get more people to see it. So little is known about Vermeer. I just find that extraordinary. It's a, one, it's a wonderful story. Well, uh, what a great exhibition. And um, going back to the NGV, actually, I remember when I was working there and we did the Dutch Masters from the Rijksmuseum. And um, there is just something very, very particular about that period of Dutch history. And, of course, he was one of their great stars. Well, Caro, I'm thrilled to know that you and I are going to be back in the studio next week. Safe travels, my friend. Thank you, Corey. I've got a couple of two or three days left. I've actually found a new hairdresser here and she's very nice and I'm going back to get a haircut tomorrow. So No I'm fringe. Not to take a coffee. And actually, she makes coffee there, which is very handy. Don't ask for the very fringe. Very handy. Um, great. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Thanks to Miss Jane for her terrific work today and getting us up and running together. You in Amsterdam, me here in Melbourne. Thanks to our podcast supporters, Red Energy, and of course, Prince Wine Store. And Carol, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.